Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the province is readying for a second wave of COVID-19. What does that mean to you and me? A woman has been arrested in Quebec in regards to the White House ricin investigation. And Unifor has reached a deal with Ford to build five new electric vehicles in Ontario. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We had our first outdoor gym class yesterday. Man, dodgeball can get really aggressive during a global pandemic. Sheesh! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! (laughs) Oh, man. Turn it up! Here we go again! Here we go again! All right. Uh, it is 1210. It is 900. CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation, and there's lots to talk about today. All right. Health officials, both federally and provincially today, uh, both the federal government releasing uh, models on what we can expect going into the fall, uh, both the federal and provincial governments uh, warning us of an increase in cases and warning us that we have to keep uh, very strict protocol in place around uh, hand washing and, and the wearing of masks and social distancing and such. And uh, as a result, uh, obviously, of, of uh, the stage three openings and, and uh, people just uh, being perhaps a little bit more lax uh, through the latter part of the summer months, we are starting to see uh, numbers tick up right the way across the country as a result. Uh, let's bring in Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Studies, Professor of Public Health Services and Sciences, Dal Atlantic School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. I hope you're doing well, too. Uh, thank you, Allison. Um, uh, watching the uh, Premier's uh, news conference today, uh, health minister and, and officials and such uh, really promoting how important the flu shot is this year. Uh, I, I guess there wasn't a lot of people getting the flu, maybe ju- or the flu shot, maybe those that were just uh, uh, susceptible to it in past years. Now they're really uh, encouraging everyone to get it. How important is the flu shot in a pandemic? Well, um, I think it's going to be important for people to get it, uh, and we'll, it remains to be seen how effective it will be. Um, sometimes there's a mismatch in the vaccine itself with the strains that are circulating, uh, but the um, sort of the advanced notice we get from watching what happens in Australia is encouraging in that um, their their flu season seemed to be really mild this year. And that was also partly put down to the fact that people are social distancing and using masks. So as part of a broader strategy, the flu shot's important. Um, but masking and social distancing will also help keep those numbers down. You pointed to Australia, and I guess we always use this as, as a gauge to see uh, what's working, what isn't working, and, and how the fl- how active uh, the flu is and, and effective a, a flu shot and such. It was interesting, a few weeks ago, as you mentioned, we were hearing numbers coming out of Australia that their flu count was actually lower because, as you said, everybody was washing hands and, and adhering to uh, the protocol. Could we mm-hmm. see the same thing here? 
Absolutely. And, and I would actually be surprised if we didn't, uh, if people are continuing to observe those public health measures around hand washing, social distancing and um, cough hygiene and masking. So, you know, these are these are all important strategies for keeping infectious diseases that are respiratory in nature um, from spreading. And so anytime we are going to be behaving in that way to keep COVID down, we're also going to keep influenza down. So what are your thoughts about where we were uh, even as, you know, uh, early as late August? We saw numbers down below 100, and then now obviously we're seeing cases back up in, in the high 400s, 478 for today. Uh, what are your thoughts of, of where we were and in, in where we've come in just uh, two, three short weeks? Well, it's, uh, it's a little discouraging to see those numbers going back up. It's not entirely surprising given that we are – reopened um, much more than we were earlier in the summer. And given that we're probably spending a little more time indoors, schools back in session, and people are becoming a little bit complacent. So all of these things are going to contribute to those numbers going back up. And we did expect to see that. I think that the rate at which they're climbing currently is a little bit alarming. But I don't think that we're past the point of no return. And this is certainly something we can manage. Uh, that was my next question. Considering where we were, I mean, things seem pretty dire. March, April, May, even uh, we were, you know, th- numbers were 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 up there. Were were quite high. Considering where we were and and how we suppressed that, uh, flattened the curve per se. Uh, are you are you concerned? Are you confident that we can do that again? I mean, even with. Uh, a, a change in what we're seeing. I mean, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and again, still today, uh, the majority of cases between new cases between 20 and 40 years of age. Uh, is that demographic getting the message? Uh, I think I think that is problematic. I mean, most of the cases that we were seeing earlier in the spring were related to long-term care settings and um, anywhere there was congregate living, uh, like in... in um, you know, when we have big dormitories on on farms for migrant health, uh, for migrant uh, farm workers. So these numbers, the, there is a demographic shift there in terms of who's getting uh, COVID and, and where they are. And they're much more likely to spread it widely than anybody who's in a long term care setting. So that is a bit concerning. Uh, obviously, it takes a while for these numbers to go through the system. Uh, we're hearing that the numbers that we saw, you know, end of last week, beginning of this week, uh, or beginning of last week, rather, uh, were more a reflection of Labor Day. Are you concerned what we might see two weeks from now? Yeah, I think we, we need to think carefully about how we're going to come together to celebrate Thanksgiving and whether mm. we want to be around our grandparents or parents if they are over you know 60 years of age certainly that is a concern and i think people need to maybe revise their expectations this is this can't be um a normal thanksgiving holiday for a lot of people and and that's really disappointing after the year that we've had so far so trying to figure out how to be with each other safely will be really important hopefully the weather is good and maybe we can see some of those thanksgiving dinners taking place outside um, but this is this is definitely the kind of event that we see a spike in numbers uh, following, like we did around Mother's Day, for example. Well, you know, I was just thinking about that Mother's Day and even Easter of uh, of last year was was a big change. So it, it could Thanksgiving this year could look a lot like uh, Easter last year Absolutely. or earlier in the year. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I think if we want to be able to to have those kinds of gatherings, we need to be really, really cautious when we see the numbers going up that we we don't get complacent and that we we can get those numbers back down pretty easily. You know, if we just impose our our own sort of quarantine on ourselves and stop interacting in the ways that we have been because we we needed that social connection no doubt over the over the summer months and that was also really important for people's mental health but when we see these numbers going back up it does get a little bit a bit worrying and while they are still fairly low we do have a really good chance of of changing it with just people's behavior change uh, you talked about the fatigue that people are experiencing, and, and we certainly saw that over the summer as people uh, tried to get out. Are you concerned about mental health, the mental health of, of some who uh, may see this as, oh, no, we're going backwards again? Absolutely. I mean, that, it's really discouraging for people to feel like they are doing their best to keep, keep these uh, measures in place and following the rules and then to see... Um, it's easy to get angry at people for not following those rules, but I think we need to be compassionate and remember that people have other health needs. They need to socialize and, and you know, a virtual hug isn't the same as a real hug. So, uh, you know, but the cost of that is is further isolation down the road. So trying to be mindful that our behavior now will impact us a few weeks from now can also help remind us that there must be other better ways to, to connect with people right now that, that aren't going to put other people at risk. So what advice do you have for those who, again, here we are, what is it? Uh, this is 28 weeks of this. <laughs> what, what advice do you have for those that, uh, as they receive the numbers, that, that, that they are ticking up again? What advice do you have? Well, I think the, the advice is, take care of yourselves and and hang in there because we're not out of the woods and we do need to think very carefully about how we're interacting with the people in our social circles again. And, you know, it's very confusing because a lot of people who have children are now exposed um, in much greater ways because their kids are back at school. Um, That gets confusing. Are they allowed to play with kids who are not in their school bubble, after school, you know, trying to limit those social contacts for kids can be really challenging, especially because they often really, really need that that connection. But just being mindful that the more we can do right now to limit our contact with one another, the better off we'll be because trying to get the numbers down from four or 500 is much easier than when they're out of control. Mm. Allison Thompson has been with us, Professor of Public Health Sciences, Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Allison, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, too. All right. Yesterday, City Council, they decided to proceed with new rules when it comes to masks in apartments, in condos, in common areas. Masks now will be mandatory under this new bylaw. To talk more about all of this, uh, Monica Siriello is with us, Manager, Licensing Division with the City of Hamilton and with us now. Monica, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks so much for having me. So talk about this new bylaw. What can people in Hamilton expect now? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what we did in, in July, as you know, we passed our, our mask bylaw, one of the first cities out of the gate. And we, oh, when we did an examination over the last couple of months, we realized that one of the best practices was to incorporate our uh, or expand our definition of establishments and include apartment buildings, condominiums and townhouses. So 
all of those common areas that fall. So we're talking elevators, meeting rooms, party rooms, things like that. Masking will now be required. So uh, the big question is, how do you enforce this? Because I'm sure you're going to get a lot of people in apartment buildings taking pictures of other people in apartment buildings who aren't wearing masks. (laughs) Are you ready for the influx, Monica? Oh, geez. We, we, it's, been a, it's been a crazy couple of months, so I, I'm sure this will sort of continue to add to it. But it's one of those things that we want to see where we can get voluntary compliance. We're sort of trying to change the culture. And, and I'm sure you notice when you go into grocery stores now or, or just out in the community, more people are wearing masks naturally. So we expect that transition to happen within the apartment buildings, within the condos as well. And again, as you mentioned, a new polling out said it's something like 80% of Canadians think that uh, this is the right way to do things. So uh, are there many people that aren't complying? You know know what? At this point, we haven't laid a charge under our masking bylaw. Compliance has been that great here in the city of Hamilton. So it's been awesome to see that we sort of had the community come behind us, accept this bylaw and recognize this is what we need to do to be able to stay safe during this time. So what are you expecting now as far as policing or enforcement of this, uh, that you will probably get calls from uh, apartment dwellers saying, hey, you got to monitor this. this, you know, we got a building that's out of hand. I mean, how do you go about addressing this once uh, once this does take effect? Well, we, we certainly, we again, we want to ensure that we get voluntary compliance. So it's about if, if there are complaints that you're finding that, that whether signage is not in in your apartment building or in your complex in common areas, um, reach out to us. So we reach out to the city and we will respond. We will be doing sort of a reactive enforcement. And we want to always start by providing education. So we'll educate the operators, we'll educate the residents so that they know how they can maintain compliance under our bylaw. Now, what about landlords? What's their responsibility in all this, Monica? Well, they, they would technically be operators under our bylaws. So they sort of have the control of the operations. So there would be an expectation to ensure that they're ensuring proper signage is put in place, that they're educating residents about um, about the bylaw that, that is now in place. Um, sorry, it will be in place once council approves it next week, but um, there, there will be an expectation that they continue to ensure that there is compliance under our bylaw. And you mentioned signage. So is it up to them or, or the city to provide signage for these apartments saying, here's what you have to do, here's, here's, what, the regu- here's what the protocol is? We, we, on our city website, if you go to the face covering section of it off our main page, we actually have the template that can be printed right off of there. So our communications department printed it to ensure that there's consistency across the city. Uh, but if they have any questions, we're always happy to help and we want to ensure that people stay safe. So we're, we're happy to educate on, on the nuances that are going to come forward and, and we'll ensure that uh, we can help out where we can. And you talked about uh, this still is not official as yet. There still has to be uh, a ratification of this. Can you give us any details when this will go into effect? Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to go, it was at Board of Health yesterday, and it was going to go before council next Wednesday, so September 30th. And if it, if it is passed there, um, it will be effective immediately. So I, I would I would recommend, strongly recommend that apartments and condos and everyone sort of get prepared for it to, to be rolling out as of next Wednesday. How did this come about? Was it just, uh, again, public health, uh, uh, sorry, uh, city health and such saying that this is a good idea? Did you get complaints from people in apartments saying, hey, you know, we're in an area here and, you know, we got common areas like elevators and hallways and no one's masking up? How did we get here? You know, we were one of the first cities out of the gate when it came to making or or drafting a mask bylaw. And one thing that we didn't include in our first round was was apartment buildings in in condominiums. And we recognized that that was a, 
a gap uh, when, when we were looking at what other municipalities had done, sort of did a best practice before this report went forward. We promised the council we would bring forward recommendations every three months to ensure that we're always up to, uh, uh, up to code with it. So this was something we, we had received complaints about, we'd received comments on from the public, as well as uh, just looking at best practices from other municipalities. And, and it was very well received at Board of Health yesterday. When you think about it, it makes it makes uh, complete common sense. Obviously, a lot of people living in one area vertically, they eventually have to come down to the street and all have to use common elevators and, and common uh, walkways, hallways to get there. Um, what buildings, is this everything? Is this uh, condos and apartments? What, what buildings does this include? So this includes everything, everything you mentioned. So we're talking hotels, motels, apartment buildings, condos, as well as town, townhouse complexes that have common areas. So if you're sharing a laundry room or a mail room, masking would be required in all of those areas right across the city. What about uh, exemptions, Monica? Well, are, there, are, there any, are there any, is there situations where this may not apply? There, we do have an exemption section, and, and it's not going to pertain to the entire building as a whole, because now as an apartment or a condo, you would be required to wear it. However, if, if, you, do have, um, if you do have an exemption, we have a whole section in our bylaw. So it, it talks about children under a certain age being unable to remove or, or place a face covering without assistance, um, things like that. If you do have an exemption, you don't have to wear a mask, and it's a self-declaration. So no, no doctor's note is required. No further questioning is required. You can simply just say, I have an exemption under the bylaw, and, and masking would not be required for you. Monica, how much of a challenge do you think this is going to be? Do you think for the most part people, like I said, over 80% now in a recent poll said they are masking anyway? Do you think this is just the obvious thing, or do you think you're going to get people who take this a step too far, whether it's hall monitors or those that are rebelling against them? <laughs> well, it, it's certainly going to keep us busy. I, I, I don't want to say it won't, but I, I, the, 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 the reaction that we've gotten from the community as a whole has been so great. And, and I think that there will be just an acceptance of this that, like you said, it, it makes sense. It was a gap that, that needed to be filled, and it makes sense for the people that are living there. And, and I think now you go in everywhere. It's just a natural thing you're putting in or, put, or putting on before you enter any establishment these days. So I think that there will be great there will be great compliance with it, and uh, I'm looking forward to it to, to ensure that we continue to keep our community safe. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure there's too many people out there that can say, I don't get them. I'm not getting the message. I'm getting mixed messaging. Right. I, th- I think we're pretty sure. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious what we have to do here. Uh, and finally, after six, after six months, uh, that messaging has finally been driven into our heads. And now, obviously, with we're seeing spikes right the way across the country. Um, are, you, are you hoping, Monica, that that will reinforce this and, and hopefully that education will do more than, than anything that the bylaw people can do? You know what, I hope so. I, I think it's one of those things that if the community kind of comes together and we get that that community compliance with it and people just naturally go to it, it makes our job, first of all, a lot easier. But it, it shows that it, it, it helps with the public health. What they've said in the report is, you know what, masking makes a difference. So if it's something we, we want to be able to get through together and COVID-19 is certainly a, a challenge in and of itself, this is one extra step that can help. And, and I think that people recognize that.
Uh, obviously, this has virtually affected everybody in, in some way or another, and I'm sure pretty much every department within the city of Hamilton. So, Monica, what are your challenges in licensing as we head into the winter, you know, uh, from where we are now into the new year, uh, whether it's uh, patios, restaurants? Uh, there's, there's, I guess there's a, lo- a long list of things to monitor through the next three months. No, no, absolutely. That there certainly is. You hit you hit the the obvious one on the head when it comes to patios. Patios are are sort of grappling with what are we going to be able to do when the winter months come up, and what does that look like with with the requirements that are getting passed down from the province. We're talking uh, different gathering limits that are now coming down from the province, and what that means to different businesses and and businesses that we're trying to help get through this challenge, whether it be. Um, uh, providing additional assistance or, or sort of helping them through the process. We're working remotely, so ensuring that we can continue to help them uh, in, in any way that we can in that fashion. Um, I, I think that it'll be a challenging couple of months for everyone, I, and I it, it will be it will be uh, it will be great to be able to come out the other side together. Are there things, practices uh, we can, meaning the city, can learn from this? I mean, you know, obviously everybody's had to be pretty nimble here in, in doing what you're doing now with the apartments and such, doing what you did with the licensing of patios. There's some really innovative, neat ideas across the city that people have made work through uh, uh, throughout the summer. Um are, are there practices in there that you think, well, we would have never done this during normal times, but this might be a good idea moving forward? Yeah, it's such a great, you raise such a great point. It's conversations we're having in the office all the time. One thing in our planning and economic development department is, is we always want to be open for business. So we've always been looking for ways to innovate. And a lot of things that, that actually were expedited during the last six months were sort of on our, our work plan to cover this year. But being able to tackle things, whether it be the patios or working closer, closer with, our, with our community partners through um, online, um, different, different ways to communicate. We're doing... Um, uh, Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, uh, sort of being able to consult, having uh, stakeholder consultations online and things like that, that provide people a different opportunity to connect with us. Things that we always wanted to do, but put in this situation, we've had to expedite and we'll certainly be keeping them because they're working for the community. Uh, Monica Siriello has been with us, Manager License Division for the City of Hamilton. Council has decided to proceed with new rules when it comes to masks in apartments and condos, common areas, uh, laundry, that sort of thing. Uh, lobbies, now masks must be worn. That has to still go to uh, Council, though, to be ratified. Monica, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I know it's a challenge Thank down there you. at the City. Uh, good luck and great job to everybody. It's, it's working, and I guess that's all we can ask for. Thanks, Monica. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on to a, a, an equally bizarre scenario. Uh, a woman, uh, the woman that has been arrested in the White House ricin investigation is due to appear in court today. Uh, she is a Canadian. This in regard to letters that had been sent to the White House and a few other locations uh, that uh, apparently contain uh, ricin or, or something of some form that is obviously uh, extremely poisonous. To get an update on all of this, let's bring in Abigail Beeman, Global uh, National Ottawa correspondent, and is with us now. Abigail, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. A uh, very bizarre story. What do we know? Uh, obviously, letters being sent to the White House. The good news, they were intercepted and nobody was harmed in any of this. But how did this investigation get back to Canada? Uh, yeah, bizarre is the uh, right word to put it. There are just 
so many moving pieces uh, in this story. In terms of the Canadian arm of the investigation, well, a couple of things. We know the RCMP is helping the FBI uh, in their investigation. We know that the the only suspect named so far in this case, uh, a, a woman that sources tell us is, is named Pascal Ferrier, was crossing the border from or attempting to cross the border from Canada uh, to the United States at the Peace Bridge when she was stopped. She allegedly had a gun with her at the time. Uh, and the arrest, although we don't know what charges she's facing, the arrest is linked to these letters that you referenced sent uh, to the White House as well as places in South Texas. Uh, and the other or more on the Canadian connection is yesterday we saw RCMP of all kinds as well as other uh, law enforcement descend on a suburb in the Montreal area, St. Hubert, Quebec, uh, and they had a search warrant for an apartment that they say is linked to the suspect. Now, they don't wouldn't confirm if she lived there, wouldn't confirm if they found rice in there, but what we do know is that we saw uh, officers in hazmat gear and military fatigues, and we know that a highly secretive uh, arm of the Canadian military that specializes in uh, not just counterterrorism, but specifically biological, chemical, and radiological threats was on scene in St. Hubert yesterday. Uh, very little information coming out of that investigation. Police got there around 10, told the media they'd be there for a few hours. It was well into the evening before they wrapped things up there. Don't know what uh, was found in that apartment. But those are just a couple of the threads here. Uh, and any any information of what led that border crossing, what the link was to those letters? I mean, obviously, you said there was a handgun that or a gun rather that was found uh, or, or she was carrying a, a gun across the border. Uh, what led to from there? Uh, where's the link to the letters? Any idea? Right. I think that's still part of what's being worked out. You know, how long uh, law enforcement or authorities were watching this individual, how long they were, how long they were on her radar for, if at all. Uh, Those are uh, things that have yet to be worked out exactly what caused uh, that arrest to be made. Uh, And again, I think we'll learn more when we see what the charges are uh, this afternoon. She has a court appearance in person in Buffalo at 4 Eastern. Uh, So we'll see what, if anything, comes out of that. Nobody has released, or the court is not releasing to us, I should say, uh, documents uh, at this point. So very little information uh, is coming out uh, about this. But uh, something else I, I, I should point out about these letters, we, we talk about them being addressed to the White House, and we don't know what the motive is at all in this case, but we do know, obviously, the target uh, being the American president. Uh, the other thing to note is that I mentioned letters going to South Texas. We saw yesterday the sheriff from Hidalgo County, a region in Texas, came out and said that he was the uh, one of the recipients, or he, the letter was intended to go to him uh, with this uh, with a substance, as well as three met staff, members of his staff from detention facilities. And there is a woman with the same name, Pascal Ferry, with uh, uh, similar, some some other overlapping characteristics, who faced charges and was arrested in Hidalgo County, Texas, in 2019. Faced charges there, so that's yet another uh, question here. If that is the same person, is there uh, is does that shed any light on the motive here that 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 uh, letters were addressed to the sheriff and some staff members in in the uh, in these detention centers in South Texas? But still, much to come out about this story. Uh, any more, Abigail, on uh, the profile of this subject, uh, any or, or the suspect, uh, social media, any affiliation with organizations of concern? 
Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. I, we uh, are still yet we have some some social media sites that that appear to be uh, linked to her. Uh, there was a a uh, there was a, a tweet concerning an anti-Trump uh, message or a kill Trump hashtag that appeared to be posted to an account uh, by a uh, individual of the same name here. Obviously, I'm couching my language carefully here because we don't know uh, if these are indeed her social media accounts. If this is the, the, the same person, we're still uh, waiting to see that when we see her in court uh, this afternoon. But that one tweet has been uh, pretty highly publicized since since yesterday. Uh, and uh, there is uh, some interesting information on her social media account. But at this point, I, I think that, uh, that, that we're still waiting to learn a lot of information in terms of potential motive or background. Uh, are there any more suspects uh, in this that we know of? Uh, does this appear to be like a, a lone wolf scenario or is something part of a larger organization or, or movement? I think the important question there is how many letters were there in total? And we don't have uh, confirmation as to the number of letters or how big this is. And, and that's one of the biggest questions I kept asking the RCMP and the FBI yesterday. Are there other suspects? Are you looking for other people? How many people? We don't have answers in those uh, to any of those questions. Uh, as uh, we, the, uh, Pascal Ferrier is the only suspect who has been arrested so far or named in this case whatsoever. And the suspect is a Canadian citizen, but recently moved from France. Is that accurate? No, uh, we're not certain of that uh, either at this point. There's some mm. conflicting information, and uh, some senior sources were, were telling us some different things when this arrest went down. And I think that's indicative of how complicated the situation is, that even her citizenship uh, is still being discussed, you know, several days after the uh, arrest was made. Uh, when are you expecting more? Obviously, as you said, uh, four o'clock court appearance in Buffalo for the suspect. Is that the next uh, piece of information we'll receive? Yes, that's the next step here. Uh, we'll listen to that court appearance, see if anything comes out of it, and hoping that maybe some documents may be released after that court appearance uh, it has happened. If there are if, if there are charges that are sworn in court, we'll uh, have to wait and see whether any uh, whether that happens and whether any documentation will follow. Have uh, police said anything in regard to any future or further threat, or is this just uh, a contained scenario? Uh, well, they have uh, not said anything in specific about that. We were asking a lot of questions about potential public safety concerns with ricin on scene. Uh, yesterday, they just said that they were, you know, taking every precaution. Uh, but uh, we have not uh, heard anything else in terms of, and that is a question we, we have been asking, uh, but we have not heard anything else about the potential of any uh, threat to public safety. Abigail Beeman has been with us, Global National Ottawa correspondent. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Abigail, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Unifor has reached a deal with Ford where five new EV electric vehicles will be made in Ontario at the Oakville plant. And uh, also, uh, Jerry Diaz, very uh, optimistic about the supplies for batteries and such. And rather than uh, sending the natural resources out and buying them back to do all of that right here. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, thank you, and glad to be with you. Uh, the, uh, the head of Unifor said, Jerry Diaz said, this is a knock out of the park. It's a home run for uh, the union. Talk about this deal and the pros and cons. 
Well, first, let me say, we weren't quite certain there was going to be a deal. Uh, they were supposed to negotiate until midnight last night. And when that came and went and there wasn't a deal with Ford, of course, you immediately begin to think strike mandate. And the union, the Unifor union, had given a strike mandate if they weren't to reach a deal. But they volunteered to keep on negotiating. And today we've had the announcement that they have signed a, a tentative, tentative three-year deal with Ford. Now, if you add three years, that gets you to 2023. And 2023 is important for Ford in Canada because for the Oakville plant, that was when they were going to stop producing the Edge SUV and the Lincoln Nautilus SUV. And up until today, we'd had uh, we'd heard no plans for what the future of that plant was going to be. And you can guess what the fear was. It would be like the GM plant in Oshawa that uh, Ford would just shift production to someplace else and we'd have more people unemployed. So the focus of this uh, negotiation with Ford was the future of that plant. And that's what Jerry Diaz has announced. I actually would like to see an announcement from Ford kind of confirming uh, Jerry's uh, excitement here. Uh, it's one thing for the union to say it, but the people who are actually supposed to make the investment. But if it's correct, it's amazing. It's nearly a $2 million investment, $2, million Canadian, $2 billion, excuse me, $2 billion Canadian investment uh, to build electric vehicles. They're going to start uh, rolling off the assembly line by 2025 with up to five different models coming off the assembly line by 2028. Now, you'll notice those dates are outside of this three-year agreement, so it is very much a forward-looking agreement. And to help sweeten the pot, the federal government has prepared to commit up to $500 million over the next number of years. So it's not a one-time check today or tomorrow, but over the next number of years to support that investment. That investment is not all in Oakville. Uh, an amount of it, a smaller amount of it, probably around the order of $100 million or $200 million, is in uh, Windsor to help there with some engine assemblies and also to start building electric batteries in Canada for the future of these automobiles. Really, all of this is great news. It means jobs that might have been on the chopping block look like they're not going to be secure and secure for at least most of the rest of this decade. So, as you mentioned, five new electric vehicles by 2028, retooling the Oakville plant and such, and, and even the emphasis on, on battery production. How, how do we get here? This is pretty impressive. Well, it is impressive, and it is forward-looking. Now, I, I don't want to be the negative Nelly here in the room, or I guess today is the term is the negative Karen in the room. Um, last year, 2019, uh, if you took a look at the volume of cars being sold in Canada, 4%, just 4% were either electric or electric hybrid combinations. So for this plant to be viable by the year 2025, you and I are going to be needing to buy more electric vehicles. And most futurists, when you put on your or you look into your crystal ball and look forward, you say, yeah, I think the future is going to see a lot more electric vehicles, but no one is just quite sure how fast this is going to come. There are really two problems today with all electric vehicles. The first is range between charges. Uh, on a good day in the summer, on a nice warm summer day, you can probably get nearly 500 kilometers before recharging your vehicle. That would mean you could drive from here to London, Ontario, and back on one charge. But you probably couldn't get a little further down the road, say, to Chatham and back. And that's on a good warm day, you know, on a frigidly cold winter day when it's minus 15 outside. You're not going to get that far. And I think you've got to get the distance between charges up a little higher 
probably on the order of 600 kilometers for it to start to be viable. And then here's the second problem. Today, when my gasoline power vehicle needs, quote, recharging, I go to a gas station, I put gas in it, and I'm out in three, four, five minutes. It doesn't take me very long to put gas in the car. But to recharge these batteries, right now it's a, you know, 15, 20-minute time process. No problem if you plan to stop and stretch your legs and get a coffee, but if you're trying to drive, say, from here to Florida, and every 500 kilometers, 600 kilometers, you've got to stop for 20 minutes, boy, that can add up to your trip a lot. So we need a faster way to charge, and I think it's coming. I don't know when it's going to be here, and therefore I'm not just quite sure when the switch is going to get flicked and we're all going to start rushing out and buying electric vehicles. So you, you brought up the the uh, the battery component of this uh, again. Canada rich in natural resources yep. for these. Uh, so uh, can we be producing these? Is it eco- is it feasible to produce these here as opposed to shipping all the natural resources out and then buying them back completed yeah. as batteries? Yeah, I'm going to say yes. Uh, apparently, apparently, and again, I'm not a uh, I'm not a car researcher. I'm not an engineer, but apparently these. Batteries use a nickel-cadmium type connection, and we have both of those resources in Canada. In fact, Tesla has been hunting around for a contract for Canadian nickel because our nickel comes with really low carbon content, and apparently as you're creating batteries, you want low carbon nickel, and they like what Canadian nickel is. To have them actually made here rather than shipping the nickel to some other place, whether it's the United States or, or China, and then having them come back, that would be great news. And Presumably what Jerry Diaz is going to do with this agreement with Ford, next up he's going to start talking to Chrysler, and then after that he's going to talk to GM. And I think he's going to try to get similar kinds of commitments from all three of these car manufacturers. So for those people worried about the future of the car industry in Canada, and frankly you should have been worried about it because the number of people employed in that industry has been going down in the last five, ten years, this could breathe new life, not just in Ford, but across all three, at least, of the North American manufacturers in Canada. And again, I think why the government, the federal government, is looking to put some money into all this is I think they're hoping to establish a, for lack of a better term, let's call it a hub of excellence here, where we've got researchers who are doing this kind of work. We've got uh, people being turned out of universities and colleges who can do this kind of work. We might be well positioned if electric vehicles are going to really be the future. Uh, in order for uh, electric vehicles to take off and sustain themselves, as you said, uh, battery capability, capacity has to be there. That requires mining of minerals, Ontario specifically, but Canada rich in all of that. Will there be just a debate? Uh, uh, will be there be just as big a debate over mining this stuff as there is extracting fossil fuel? Is mining these elements uh, less an impact on the environment than a, a fossil fuel extraction? Well, in particular, I think where the fossil fuel debate comes up isn't with a, a, what I'll call a typical well that I drill down in the ground and lovely liquid oil comes up on the other side. Those are are relatively clean, and environmentalists, while they're not happy to see them, they tolerate those. The problem on the oil industry side, of course, is the tar sands. We have got one of the biggest deposits of oil in the world, but all that oil is mixed with sand, and so we have to use steam and water to try to to get that oil freed up. What does come out tends to be thick and pasty, and it's difficult to refine, and this is where environmentalists suggest, why don't you just leave that all in the ground? In the case of, of what we need here, whether it's the nickel or the cadmium or what have you, 
it is a, a relatively clean process. Mining is a relatively clean process. Smelling, smelting is also a relatively clean process. It's not, trust me, it does have its environmental concerns, but I think it doesn't involve pipelines. It doesn't involve um, the same volumes of, of water. You don't have the same waste problems. So I doubt, I doubt that's going to be the same kind of environmental pushback that we're getting with the tar sands. What about uh, when these vehicles have run their course? What happens to batteries? Where do they, how do they get disposed of? Is that another problem on the other end? I'm being a, I'm playing devil's advocate. Sure, here, no, I, I understand, uh, and and I think you know there was a time I remember when I was a child growing up, and we had these carbon dry cells. You remember those you put in your flashlight or something, and when they were worn out, you just tossed them in the trash. Uh, now, of course, the whole idea is that these components can be recycled, and they can take the shall we call it, the used materials out and put different materials in and send them back out again. Same thing today with your smartphones and your computers. All of these things have batteries in them, and they don't want you to throw them in the garbage. They have recycling programs to bring them back. So, again, I think if you look at the life cycle of these devices, what have you, it's a much more positive thing. And maybe I can also note something about electric vehicles. I know a lot of people, you know, they still poo-poo electric vehicles, but the cost of charging a vehicle for your driving is significantly less than gasoline and also the type of engine you put in an electric vehicle is significantly different right now with a gasoline powered engine it's like we have little controlled explosions as we burn a fossil fuel that fires a piston of course then we've got to water cool the engine because the engines get so hot uh, you get oil in there to help lubricate all that process what have you an electric engine is a different beast completely mm-hmm. it requires much less maintenance you don't necessarily have all this cooling and heating problem you don't have these little mini explosions going off inside the engine so you know all told if you look at the life cycle of an electric vehicle in every way possible it's better for the environment Uh, and again i think then if environmentalists say well where do we boycott do we boycott a pipeline or do we boycott trying to get things for green cars i I think they're going to give more of a pass at least at this point on the green vehicles than the than the carbon-based vehicles Marvin Ryder with us, business, uh, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you today. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, if you are a uh, motorhead, a racing fan, a NASCAR person, uh, Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan are partnering for a new NASCAR team. Bubba Wallace behind the wheel to talk more about all of this. Eric Thomas is with us from the Race Line Radio Network, Canada's National Radio Motorsports Authority. You can hear it, of course, every Sunday night right here on CHML. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. We're doing great, Scooter, and we haven't we haven't had a chance to uh, to talk uh, in quite a while, and I've I've missed that terribly. But uh, we're we're carrying on here, and this is our uh, as you know, 28th season of Race Line Radio, and we're doing. Our shows in a pre-record format, of course, CHML being one of our co-flagship stations, and uh, working with a fine staff there, and uh, along with you, you know, making sure these shows still get on the air, and you know, it, it catches us out every once in a while because we have to pre-record things. So sometimes, you know, late-running NASCAR races or whatever don't get included, but we can do postscripts on them the next week. So it's uh, it's been great. The sponsors have been great. The station has been fabulous, and uh, and uh, we carry on here. But uh, lots of lots of racing news because despite the fact that. The COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, of course, it, you know, listening to you in the roll up here, has has you know decimated just about or had great effect on just about every racing schedule you can think of, including NASCAR. But uh, you know, here we here we go with uh, some news in the off season regarding uh, NBA icon Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin currently in the series, and 
one of the most successful drivers. And, of course, Bubba Wallace who was involved in a lot of you know, racial controversy earlier on in NASCAR with the Confederate flag and everything, is going to drive for a brand-new one-car team next year with, uh, uh, you know, with a black owner and a black driver. And part of that NASCAR diversity thing that we, we've talked about from time to time is, is hitting an, another gear, uh, which is a good thing. We certainly know the popularity of Michael Jordan and what he has meant to the NBA and such. What's it like to have him in NASCAR? What does well, this do for the sport? Well, I, I think it, it certainly does something that he wants to do is that he wants to, you know, attract a new audience. You know, certainly he has, he still has legions of NBA basketball fans and just fans of Michael Jordan as, you know, the person is still a very marketable commodity the fact that that he's a visible minority bubba wallace is a visible minority they bring a new awareness they can they can uh, bring in a, a new audience that may not have had much interest in nascar or the sport in general up until now but just to demonstrate that you know there is an attempt to add more diversity to to nascar and just to the sport of of stock car racing in general that may not have been exposed to it before that there are indeed opportunities to be had not only as a as a driver but as certainly as a as a team owner and if you want to get in you know to uh, the crews and the and the team personnel involved in this that it is not necessarily you know a white dominated sport they certainly are outnumbered but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be you know a, a holdback for anybody of color who wants to get into this game and i think that's primarily what he wants to do and and uh, and michael jordan mentioned that in the interviews uh, after you know, announcing they're taking over Jermaine Racing's charter in NASCAR and they're going to run rather that, that uh, one-car team next year. Uh, obviously, uh, NASCAR has had its challenges over the years with crowds and such declining. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, other venues of uh, motorsports have done better. Some have, have not so much. Uh, with bringing a, a profile, a high-profile person like Michael Jordan into the sport, what does that do for the stability of it all? What do you think? Well, kind of the same thing. I, th- I think that, you know, up until we had all the, the Bubba Wallace Confederate flag and noose controversy that we certainly talked right. about in the news and you talked about and we discussed on the air here, you know, is, is, the, is that they are trying to, and NASCAR has, uh, has had a program in place for quite a while to bring, again, that word diversity to the series and, and make it um, attractive situation, not only from a fan standpoint, but also from an owner standpoint, a sponsorship standpoint, and, 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 the, and the marketability of the sport. And I think that that's good. I think, again, not to get repetitive, but anytime you can you can broaden the potential customer base from a fan standpoint, from a sponsor standpoint, from a television number standpoint, I think that's good. I mean, that's that's always a you know a very very good thing. And I think that all that does is shore up the stability. Of NASCAR, just to show that they, you know, you can you can put in programs to try and instill more diversity, to to try and stem, curb, and or reduce systemic racism that is not just in this sport, but is in a lot of other sports as well. Anytime you can bring uh, folks in like Michael Jordan and certainly Bubba Wallace uh, into this thing, and of course it doesn't hurt to have Denny Hamlin involved in this as an owner. Yeah. He's going to continue to drive for Joe Gibbs 
and they're going to use Joe Gibbs equipment, engines and Toyotas and what have you. So um, it'll be Michael Jordan's team to run. Of course, they'll announce, you know, crew chiefs and, and various personnel at a, at a later date. But Denny's going to continue. Denny's been one of the front runners. We've discussed him from time to time on, on these segments and on Raceline Radio as well about what a front runner he is, and he's certainly involved in the in the current playoff. And uh, you know, one of those guys who we always have believed was on the cusp of winning a championship, and and we'll get there. I, I, I still think he can. A very talented guy, but to have these guys work together, I mean, Denny and mm. Michael Jordan have been golf buddies for a long, long yeah. time, and and they discussed the possibility of of having a team. And and Jordan has mentioned that when he was a small kid. You know, in the Carolinas, the yeah. team. You know, the family used to always go to the races, so this is just something new for him. This is a guy yeah. who's you know been around at racetracks. He's been friends with Richard Petty going way back. So this isn't something new to him. He's a, he's a dyed in the wool, genuine race fan, yeah. and now he's going to bring his money in, the sponsors in, and, and put a good team forth. So that, that that's good for the stability of the sport. All right, have to ask you about seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson retiring this year, but then going indie racing. Yeah, wants to do the road courses in the streets. He always had mentioned. Going back a long, long way when he was the king of the castle and winning his, his seven championships, which is outstanding. I mean, he's not had the greatest last couple of years here, but when you look back at his numbers, holy jumping. I mean, he's one of the best that NASCAR has ever had. But he always had mentioned that he was always intrigued uh, by IndyCar, not necessarily on the ovals. The danger of the ovals kind of scares him. A little bit, but I got to think that once you know he can get some sponsorship uh, with Chip Ganassi Racing had a tremendous test, and and you know he looked at home in these things. Didn't take him long to get up to competitive lap times, so they decided to uh, to to get a contract together with Chip Ganassi, and if they can find the money, are going to put him on all the streets and all the roads. Of course, if it's a street race and Toronto's in business, you're going to see him in Toronto driving an Indy car, which would be outstanding. My thought is that once he tries an oval, do a short one first. You know, do Richmond, do St. Louis, do you know, do Iowa, you know, Gateway St. Louis, do Iowa. One of the small ones. You don't have to necessarily do you know Indianapolis or any of the bigger ones. But who knows? Once he gets a taste of that, and once he gets into the framework and the family of it, and the structure of it, and and the uh, the family atmosphere around, I think I don't think it would take long for him to say, okay, I'll try an oval. But wow, what an addition mm. to NASCAR! Yeah. You know, Fernando Alonso was there from F1. Now Jimmy yeah. Johnson from NASCAR. That's pretty good. I mean, it's an enticing way. To go racing, and if you've done yes. stock cars pretty much all your life, that's a, that's a nice thing to try, and I'm glad he's there. Uh, I can't let you go to, out, out without asking the latest information on Canadian Motor Speedway. Where is that? Well, well, little more progress. It's been it's been dormant at least visibly for yeah. the last ten years. But what they needed to do, they needed to get an extension on their zoning shotgun clause or the sunset clause uh, extended, and they have to twenty twenty one. Uh, it took so long to get it to this point in $34 million spent that they lost their original overall investor. But they have found a new investor from the U.K., a new timeline. They hope to get equipment again back on the land within a year. Uh, they just had trouble getting Mideast money into the country. They've restructured all of that, so there is some progress. The town has approved, and so has the, the province, approved an extension on the Sunset Clause. So there was a lot of work in behind the scenes going through all this banking bureaucracy baloney that they had to go through to get it to the next step, and it's taken an inordinate amount of time. But something else, the price of this thing that includes a three-quarter mile oval, uh, the new investor is a motorcycle guy, so you're looking at an FIA, FIM grade uh, road course along with a three-quarter mile Richmond Lake Oval, <laughs> seating for sixty to sixty-five thousand. Still on the page, still in planning. Uh, now they've got to they get a site plan to the town of Fort Erie and get bulldozers and stuff back on that land within a year. And there's there's your update on it. 
Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. Make sure you're listening uh, this Sunday night, CHML, for uh, more on all of this. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You bet. You too, and continue to stay safe, my friend. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.